Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36, we read. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. From one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Oh God, help us this morning. God, you've got to open hearts. You've got to open ears. Lord, I pray that you would remove all the attempts that we have to try to qualify our way out of this text. Because that's what we want to do. The flesh wants to find ways around it. It wants to, to say like the rich young ruler, Lord, we have done these things. Jesus, show us where we fall short. Not as a means of the basis of our salvation, but as a means to be greater reflections that we're sons and daughters of the living God. That you would be so radically glorified by the supernatural love that is the defining mark of your people. Lord, you've got to help us this morning. You've got to move upon our hearts. So God, everywhere that the flesh wants to, 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 re, to, to just repel itself from this, that's where it, where it seeks to, to move away and to flee away. And our mind seeks to qualify and try to, 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 to lessen the intensity of which Jesus speaks here. Lord, I say that you would just that you would prune it away. And that you would let it land heavy on our hearts. To live for greater love and greater glory for you. So, Lord, we praise you and thank you. Help us now. Separate the bone from sinew by the sharp sword of your word and pierce us with it that this love might radically mark your people. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus, in the opening of this message, has taught us where true blessedness is found. True blessedness is found in what Christ says, not what the world says. Christ has shown us that in Him, our present condition is not our final conclusion. And if you've come to Him by faith, if you are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. If you are hungry now, you shall be filled. If you weep now, you shall laugh. If you are 
hated and excluded and slandered and, and spurned as evil for on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, for great is your reward in heaven. When you fully come to believe what you have in Jesus, it won't just change the way you think. Jesus now shows us that it will change the way you live. When you really believe that you are fully blessed in Him, that yours is the kingdom of God, that your reward is great in heaven. So when you are filled with faith and hope and the promises of Christ and the blessings of Christ, it's going to change how you live. And if it doesn't change how it lives, you don't know Jesus. If it doesn't change the way you live, you have no idea of the blessedness you have. If it doesn't change the way you live, you are not in the, present, the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not in you. You cannot have an encounter with the living God and your life not be transformed. You cannot be touched by Jesus and the fingerprints of His glory not be seen on your life. He has called us to rejoice when we are reviled and slandered and excluded and spurned for evil and persecuted. But, but notice, that response denotes how we respond towards God. So, so we rejoice because we rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer on the count of Christ. It's, a, it's an act of worship, praise, celebration, leaping for joy. That denotes our response towards God. But now, Jesus explains how we are to respond to the ones who actually do that stuff to you. So when you're slandered, hated, persecuted, reviled, excluded, slandered, spurned for evil, yeah, rejoice to God, but... but what do I do to those who did that to me? And what Jesus says is radical. It's radical. And if it's not radical enough to you, you're not thinking on it hard enough. Jesus challenges everything about our notion of what love is. Verse 27 and 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Go ahead and stop there for a second. I say to you who hear, you've got to have ears to hear. You've got to have supernatural ears to hear this. Because if not, you'll spurn it off. You won't even, it'll pass by you. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus has made clear to these disciples. He's just called. Remember, context is king. He's just told them, you follow me, you're going to be hated. People will hurt you. People will spurn you. They will persecute you. You will be rejected for me. You may be made to be poor because of me. You might not be able to buy and sell food because of me. So what should you do? How should you respond to them? And the answer is, is with supernatural love. With supernatural love. Produced by a faith that I am in the present kingdom of God. It is mine. And hope that my reward is great in heaven. Faith and hope produce love. They produce it. 
Because if you don't have faith that you are truly blessed in Christ, that he truly, that, that, that vindication is the Lord's, justice is the Lord, vengeance is the Lord. And you don't have a, a hope that your reward is great, that this is not your home, that your peace and everlasting life and love and passion and care is not going to be forever in Christ. If you don't have that faith and that hope, you won't be able to love like this. You won't be able to love like this. Now, when we read this passage, there, are a, there is a cascading effect of interpretation that happens in our heart. The first response is to go, I, 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 I do this. I love people. I don't, I don't, I'm not out there hurting anybody. You know, I may talk bad about them, but I don't hurt them. And I may slander them and gossip about them and talk about how terrible they are and, you know, how much better the world would be without them. And, you know, but I, I'm not burning their house down. Like the rich young ruler, the self righteousness floods in us and say, Lord, I have done all these things. That's the first one. Then the second response is, is repulse, right? We're repulsed by it. But Lord, you don't know what so-and-so did to me. You don't know what someone's done to me. How can I love them? And you see, the problem with this interpretation where our minds are going is we're starting already in our mind to identify who our enemy is. So the first thing we do when we read it is we start going, oh yeah, that's so-and-so. That's so-and-so. That's so-and-so. Alright, Lord, I guess I could just grin and bear and go love so-and-so. Grin and bear and go love so-and-so. We already start writing the list on our heart of who those enemies are. find it fascinating that that is such a natural response. The first response that we have to this is, Who is my enemy? But it's not just there. You remember the Pharisees? When Jesus teaches them to love their neighbor? What was the response? Who is my neighbor? See, that's what we want to do. We want to qualify who is my neighbor, who is my enemy, so that I can direct my efforts of love towards them. It's about doing. It's about doing. And what I love about when they asked who is my neighbor, Jesus gives them a parable. A parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, the neighbor is the enemy. The Samaritan treats the Jew, his enemy, like a neighbor. It shows him immense love. And so what's happening in all of this story is our vision of who is our neighbor and who is our enemy. Christ is just, just bulldozing it and saying, your enemy is your neighbor. We so often want to just start qualifying who is our enemy. And that says more about us than it does the Lord. The radical form of love, supernatural love, is not produced by knowing who your enemies are. 
It's produced by knowing what your God has done for you when you were His enemy. This call to love shouldn't be driven by the extent to who our, uh, what our enemies have done or who our enemies are. The extent to follow through with this call to love is based upon who's giving the command and reflecting upon the fact of what He has done for you who were once His enemy. An immense grace and mercy and love. The perfect, holy God of heaven came down to die for enemies like you and me. And the problem is, is the moment we start getting repulsed by this command, it's because we're thinking more about us than we are about Him. When the reality is, is the moment we hear this command, it shouldn't even be an issue because, yeah, that's what He did for me. Of course this is how His people should be. Because that's what we are marked by. We are the product of immense, eternal, supernatural love and therefore we should be reflectors of it. The word love here is agapeo. It is a love that reflects the nature of God. As opposed to, uh, you know, love like eros and phileo and surge, which are all aspects of what we get from the action. It's a, it's a reciprocating kind of love, those other aspects of love in the Greek. But agapeo is a love that reflects the nature of God. It is a, it is a, a love that is completely others-focused, with no hopes, no thought of reciprocation. Why? You can't give God anything in return. Every act of love that God gives is totally towards others, towards something else, because nothing can be given to God. He can't, you can't repay God. You can't give back to Him. So everything from Him is a complete and total condescension away from self, completely towards the recipient of love. We are the the result of that. We are the result. Those who were enemies of God, deep, depraved sinners at war with Him and His holiness. And yet, He loved us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, to lay out the realities of this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. You are of your father, the devil, basically. Among whom we all once lived in the passage of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who you were, enemies of God, children of wrath, but God. Next verse, but God. That's the gospel. Two words, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love, agapeo, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. 
We, remember, we have memorized this, this verse, I think, to our own detriment. That it's lost its pow factor. That you were dead. And what can dead men do for themselves? Nothing but stink. Nothing but stink up the place. That's what we're doing. We are children of wrath by our nature and our previous existence. Walking in disobedience, enemies of God, despising things of holiness. What we deserved, what was fair, was that God gave us all justice. You don't want God to be fair. Fair gets you hell. You want God to be gracious and loving. Because that's our only hope for glory. That's what He gave us. Out of nothing else but agape of love. Immense love. Love that is beyond, as Paul says, who that you might know the heights and depths and width and span of the love of God in Christ. That geometry of divine love. Which is beyond comprehension. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows His love for us. How? How? In what way? In that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were cleaning ourselves up. And not, not when you were trying to be better. No. While you were still sinners. While you were still an enemy of Him. While you were still at total enmity with Him, at war with Him, He died for you. And He used the very war that we wage against Him to be the means that He would save us. Every hammering of the nail into the flesh was an act of the enmity of man towards God. And yet in every blow of man's attack on God, it was an ounce of love pouring out from Him towards man. Towards enemies. There was nothing we could give back to God. There was nothing we did to deserve that love. There was nothing at all that we could merit or obtain the favor of the Lord. And yet, in radical, infinite, condescending grace, the God of heaven comes down, takes upon human flesh, lives the life we could not live, dies the death that we deserve, bearing, the, bearing our wrath imputed to Him upon God, bearing the wrath of God for our sin fully and completely upon Himself for enemies like you and me. If the call to love your enemy is repulsive to you, it's because you don't know the gospel. Or at least you haven't thought about it enough. I think so often we think God owed us something. He knows nothing but hell. You are an enemy of God. Estranged at every corner. 
every fiber of your being tainted with a force that is repulsive to a holy God. And yet He loved you. He loved you to death. Literally. My friend, you will never rightly love anyone, much less your enemy, until you know the manner and depth in which Christ has loved you. And when you truly reflect upon what He did for you and what you were to Him and the fact that He saved you as an enemy, you'll, you'll never know what it is to just look upon people with immense love Jesus makes very clear in this text, though, love's not a feeling. Love is an action. A condescending action from self to others. Uh, an emptying of self to others. With no thought as to what I'll get back. It's an emptying of myself, of my pride and my vanity and my selfishness, of everything that you might be able to do for me and get back for me in return. It is an emptying of self towards others. You can love someone and not be liking them in the moment. You cannot like what's happening. But it doesn't at all touch the way that you love everyone. Emptying of yourself for the sake of others. And so, he says, how does this love look? Do good to those who hate you. Think of Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. How do we do that? How do we do good to those who hate us? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. I love this text. So how? First of all, he gives us the basis for why we can do this radical goodness. Show this radical love. It's because vengeance belongs to the Lord. We are not a retaliatory people. That is not the mark of Christianity. To be people of retaliation and vengeance. No. When you know God is perfect in His justice, that He will be perfect in His justice to come, that vengeance belongs to Him, it frees you for radical love. It frees you to do things that make no sense, like feeding the man who was trying to kill you. Clothing the one who wanted to hurt you and harm you. Why? Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. And I want to see this person know the salvation of Christ. But many of you walk around with the Jonah curse. You don't want them saved. If you're honest, you don't want them saved. You don't want to do anything. You don't want anything to do with them here. So what makes you think you want to do anything with them in heaven? You don't avenge yourself. Rather do good to them. Overcome evil by good. This is what sets us apart in the world. This is what marks us out as radical and weird. This supernatural love that is meant to be the defining mark of His people. You shall know them by their love. 
Bless those who curse you, he says. First Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain the blessing. Don't revile back in return. You bless, right? You may ask, well, what, what does that look like? Somebody sitting there cushioning you out and you just say, oh, God bless you. you know, is that what that looks like? No. It is speaking the truth to someone in love. If, if someone is coming at us very harshly, right? It can be very honest with them. What you are saying is not right. And you need to repent of that. Because God would not have us talk that way. There can be truth in love. Blessing people is giving them truth, not running from it. We bless by pointing people to God even when they seek to curse us for Him. Right? We don't get to revile back though. We don't get to slander back. We don't get to get in the name calling. We don't get to get in the the Twitter wars with each other. We don't get to be those on social media timelines fighting our brothers and sisters in the faith. What wickedness. What, What reflection of Christ to the world with brothers and sisters on social media timelines calling each other out. How evil. And it's so abundant today. Pray for those who abuse you. This one that come, hits home, especially here in America, with our divided po- politicism. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1-4. through First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you find it hard to pray for your political leaders today, You haven't thought about the context in which that was written. That was written when Nero was an emperor who was persecuting and killing Christians, having them lit, covered in tar, and lit to light his parties at night. That's who he's saying pray for. That's who he's saying to intercede on behalf of. So you've got a problem interceding for your political leaders. You've got a heart problem. Are you spending more time criticizing them or praying for them? Because here's the truth of the matter. Prayer gets you as close to that individual than any of their advisors get. Because it carries them directly to God. And it says, God, change them. Let them know you that they might be saved. We often want policy change, but we don't want people changed. Not realizing that the first comes after the, after the, the, the latter. If you want things to change, hearts need to be changed. Lives need to be changed. Souls need to be saved. So where's the outpouring of prayer? I see the outpouring of criticism, no matter who's in the office. But I don't see out the outpouring of prayer. That's what sets us apart. At least it should. So easy. To look at the other side of the aisle, the aisle, and say they're evil, they're the problem. 
We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But powers and principalities and the spirits of darkness. And prayer is a weapon that destroys those enemies and liberates those people. So we pray for them. We pray for them. Because God is the only one who can change hearts. You can't do it. With all of your picketing and everything like that, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but you can pick it all day. You can, you can talk to them about how bad they are today. You can quote Levitical law to them all day. It won't do anything if their heart isn't changed by God. Period. So you pray. You lead with prayer in all things. So do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Jesus here is undermining any notion of retaliation. Any notion of revenge that might fuel us as a people of Christ. Christians cannot be fueled by getting even. If you're fueled by getting even, you don't have a Christ-like heart. You have a worldly one. Christians are fueled not by getting even, but by glorifying God. And they do this, how? By demonstrating love so that when, when and to whom it seems... We, 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 we take this love and we offer to those that it seems impossible to do so. Everyone else is fighting. Everyone else is divided. What is different about you people? Why do you constantly live with radical love towards others? Right? Radical love seen in doing good, in blessing them with truth and kindness, praying for them rather than critiquing them all of the time. It's not saying there isn't a place for critique and righteousness, but it better come from a place of prayer. Oftentimes it just comes from a place of, of arrogance. Corey Ten Boom, a survivor of the Holocaust whose sister was killed in the Holocaust, went around doing pre, uh, ministry there in Germany after the war, talking about forgiveness and the importance of it. One day, she noticed a man, a tall man in the back, that sparked familiarity in her heart, and it literally caused her to almost freeze while she was speaking. She realized that the man that was standing in the back was the man that carried her sister to the chamber. And in that moment, Corey Ten Boom found everything that she had been preaching and teaching to others as nearly impossible. And at the end of the service, the man came to her and he asked for forgiveness. And she said everything in her repulsed against it. And then he held her hand and she said in that moment the Lord poured over her and flooded over her with the reality of love. Because she realized that she wasn't looking at an enemy. She was looking at a neighbor. But that man had done nothing worse to her than she had ever done to God. She writes, quote, You never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. We are called to be a radical people. I've said that and I'll keep saying it. You'll see it over and over again through this teaching of Jesus. 
a peculiar, set-apart, holy people that are so radically different from the world. And that always flows constantly out of the reminder of what He's done for us. So, I know that right now, this is, he's, he, he's hit a, a nerve with His audience. And now He amps it up by giving them examples. Really what seem to be extreme examples. Verse 29, He gives the first one. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And, and he stops there. So, so this is amazing to me. It, is Jesus saying, right, just stand there and take getting beat up. Just be passive in life. Be a doormat. Take abuse over and over again. Try to do nothing to better your situation. No. That's not what this idiom is. That's what it, it's an idiom, a part of speech, a, a, a teaching, right? To, to slap someone in this culture, it was an act of shame. It was to put shame on someone. And remember, what is the context? When people do this to you on account of me. So in other words, when you are hurt and shamed for me, when someone seeks to slap you on account of my name's sake, give them the other cheek also. This is a text that demonstrates the honor of one who will not be brought down to the standards of his oppressor. It's to say, you won't get me to act like you do. Boy, we get pulled into that. We get drawn. The enemy draws us into that. We get slandered enough. We get attacked enough. And the first response is, well, I'm getting them back. Well, they did it to me first. And what Jesus is teaching here is that the honor of His followers is found in this. We will not be lowered to the standards of our oppressors. You will not carry us down there. Because we are living for Him. Not for self. This is someone who says, I will be insulted for Christ over and over and over again. And I'm just going to keep doing it. You can hurt me, slander me, beat me. If you take, hit me with the left cheek for, for, for living for Christ, I'll give you the right cheek because I'm just going to keep living for Him. I will not succumb to what you want me to be. I will live for the way He wants me to be. This is how we love our enemy. Little by little, demonstrating to them that Christ is worth enduring anything they throw at us. Why do you think they oftentimes poke at you? They want to see you give in. Why do you think they poke you? Why do you think the enemy constantly pokes you and, and hits you? And usually it's with people that are closest to you. He wants to see you collapse. That's what they want to see. They want to see, is this Jesus really worth standing for? Is He really worth compromising your standards? Because that's what happens. That's why you're under a radar. You're under a target. I see it all the time. I literally live, I have a job where the cross is sewn to my uniform. And day after day, there are soldiers there who poke just to see. Just to see if you really believe what you say you do. How will you respond to this? And they've said some really off the wall things. But how will you respond? How will you respond? 
Will you lower yourself to their standard? To be accepted? To not, to not feel that pain anymore? Or will you say, here's the right cheek also? The best example of this, Acts chapter 5, verse 40 through 42. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from the house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ Jesus. Did they go and get a mob and say, we're going to go beat these guys up in the Sanhedrin? These are some young fishermen. They could probably go take these old scholars out. Let's go get our team and go fight them. No. They go away from there having been beaten on the left cheek and they turn to them to right saying, we're going to keep preaching. You won't get us to succumb to your standards. Why? Because we're a heavenly people, not an earthly one. This is what Paul meant when he said to, to live in such a way as a, in a manner worthy of the gospel in which you were called. It, it's, it's to say that I really believe what he did for me. I really believe that I was an enemy of God saved by nothing but grace and love. And therefore, the only response that I can have is to live for him and to reflect that to others. I will not be brought down to the standards of the world. I will not give in to the the desires of my flesh. I will stand for Christ and I will show others He's worthy to stand for. He's worthy to suffer for. And I will not give in to their standards. No matter how difficult that may be. Now I want to make clear there is love In confronting evil. We should confront evil. I I love what Peter will say to them elsewhere. You got to do what you got to do to us. But as for us, we must obey God rather than men. That was love when he said that. That was love. It was love when Jesus tells the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil the way you're acting. There is love in calling out evil and sin. But the way we love must be reflected in the manner in which we confront sin. You don't get to confront it like the world does. You don't get to confront evil the way the world does. I'll give you an example of this, of what this may look look like in our current sphere. It is loving absolutely loving to go outside of a Planned Parenthood clinic and to tell those women there, please don't murder your baby. We will love you. We will support you. We will help you. And if you don't want it, we'll adopt that baby. We love you. We want you to know Christ. We want you to know there's forgiveness. We want you to know that there is salvation. We want you to know that there is hope through this, that you don't have to succumb to this fear It is loving to say to those who pass radical abortion bills that that allow us to murder babies in the womb, image bearers of God. It is right and loving to say, you will stand on account if you don't repent of this and stop it. We are to do all of that. But we are not to go and start burning down Planned Parenthood clinics. 
We are not to start breaking doors in and tearing stuff down and hurting and harming people. We don't get that. We don't get that opportunity. That's not ours to have. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Love belongs to us. And this goes in so many other spectrums as well. Love is not merely passively allowing abuse to happen. But love shapes the way we confront it when it does happen. Little by little, we reap those coals over the head of our enemy. What what does that mean? It means that we literally, like, we, we pierce, we bring heat to their conscience. It brings anger to them. Why can't I get this guy to just give in? I want him. I want him to cuss. Why? Because the moment you start acting like they do, it takes the pressure off the conviction. It, 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 all that stuff that you were saying about the gospel, I can give in now because you're no different than me. I was getting worried there for a minute. I thought this thing might be real. But the moment you've given in, that's taken the weight off. As opposed to building up that conviction that says, there's something real to this Jesus thing. I better get right. The moment they used to come, it gives them the, the hands to say, yep, yep, see, they're just like everybody else. This Jesus stuff's just a hoax. Just a band-aid to try to make people's life better. It's not really transformative or changing. It ought not to be the reflection that we give to people. You see, the glory of Christ manifest through our action must be more important to us than the protection of ourselves and the protection of our stuff. The desire to see God glorified in me must be greater than my desire to protect myself and protect my stuff. And that's what he keeps saying here. The end of verse 29 and 30, right? From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. The love of Christ's followers is demonstrated in that they are more concerned with the needs of others than they are the preservation of their materials. I am more concerned that that person has what they need than I am about what I lost. Boy, that will radically reorient our mind in the West. And if you weren't challenged by this text, I don't know. know. Because I'm challenged by this text. Just a little context here. That that tunic, right? That tunic and the cloak. The tunic is the outer shell, right? The cloak was that inner part, that inner garment. And to give away your cloak was to say, literally to give yourself open to the, the, the cold, the winter. It was to expose yourself to danger. And to expose yourself to shame. That I'm willing to expose myself to danger and shame for the sake of the one who robbed from me more than I am my own preservation. Don't let the qualification start happening. Don't let the enemy right now creep in your mind and say, ah, this doesn't really contain, pertain to us. You've got to watch yourself. Don't you dare start in your heart having a sermon about stewardship. Well, what about stewardship? Stop it. It's not what it's about. It's not what this is about. This is to say 
That the love of God's people is marked by a condescending love that empties self for the sake of others. It's not about being stupid. It's not about just not not thinking anything about where you're at. It's about saying that my, my heart is so radically caught up in the glories I have in Christ that my primary purpose is to see others receive the blessings that He has that they might know Him as opposed to my own self-preservation. And yes... Sometimes it is loving not to give a certain thing. But it is never loving to leave someone empty. You may not be able to give them a certain thing, but it doesn't mean you don't have other things that you can provide instead. It may be wrong in a certain time to give money, but was it wrong to go give food? Is it wrong to provide a job? We got a, a member in the church who's in need, looking for work for months, and then you got someone who's a business owner that, but can't seem to find an opportunity to give him a job. I'm not saying that's happening here, but it happens in the church everywhere. People without employment, without work, and yet we've got oftentimes Christian business owners and workers who are like, I'm praying for you. I, I pray for you. I hope it works out. Instead of saying, how can I find a place to employ? How can I find a place to help? i got a few things around the house I'm willing to pay you to help with, you know. It's about emptying ourselves for the sake of others, even those who've wronged us. Because the desire to glorify God is more important than the desire to protect myself and protect my stuff. What if they take from me again? What what if I'm abused? I promise you, you won't care about it in heaven. All the times you were wrong or someone took advantage of you, you won't think about it one moment in glory. You will not carry your earthly heart into heaven. But you need to let your heavenly heart be carried into earth. The teaching is that our love and grace towards others is not based upon what they have have done or what they can do for me. It is done out of love for them that seeks to glorify Christ through my response to even robbery and begging and burglary. You know why? Because you were all robbers and beggars and burglars to God. You were all thieves and enemies and murderers to God. You are adulterers and lusters to God. And yet He has lavished upon you every good gift in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, 35. We saw this text last week, but I can't get it out of my head. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, robbery, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What does he mean, throw away your confidence? It's to start going, this is getting bad. 
We're losing stuff. He's really not worth following. Because that was the problem with the book of Hebrews. Is you had Hebraic Christians saying, following Jesus is not good. Let's go back to just being Jews because that's a legal religion. Let's, let's abandon this stuff. We're getting killed for following Jesus. Let's just go back to the temple stuff. The sacrifice stuff. They let us do that. When it got hard, it's when they wanted to start going backwards. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't you throw away the confidence you have in Jesus. Don't you throw away the reward you have in Him. That's the reason you were able to endure. That's the reason you were able to rejoice. No matter what happened to you. Why? Because His glory was more important than your stuff. And I think we struggle with that. I know I struggle with it. Is His glory more important than my stuff? Is His glory more important than my status? Is His glory more important than my security? And so here's the golden rule. Verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Notice, as you wish others to do. Got nothing to do with what they're doing. What they have done. As you wish people would do to you. As you wish it. If you think of what is the best thing I wish people treated me as. That's what you better be doing. What is the way that I wish people treated others in this world? I wish I was treated. You better go do it. So often I think people think they're going to get to. I, I talked to an atheist about this the other day. At work. When I get to heaven, he said, I'm just going to explain to God, well, if I just don't see how you were real because there was so much starving and so much hunger in the world and there were so many people that were hurting and, and you didn't do anything about it. And, and I said to him, well, God's going to look at you and say, what did you do about it? So easy for us to look at the reproach of the world and blame it on God. Instead of saying, we're the product of this. We're the problem. So as you wish others would do. If you want to see a world where people love each other, where there is, where there is not divisiveness, where there is an embracing and care and mutual love and support and immense fellowship and community built, it starts with us. Our whole purpose of existence, the reason Christ has left us in the world is to show the world there's something different. There is a radical community who does what we wish people would do. This kills the, the, that desire for retaliation. And it produces forgiveness and creates compassion. When you would do as you wish people would do to you. That's how you ought to think. What is the way in which you wish everyone treated you? Go do likewise. That's the call. That's the golden rule. It's not as others do to you, go do to them. It's as you wish they did to you. Go do to them. However, this can also produce a dangerous expectation. It can produce an expectation in our heart that says, if I go do this, others will do it back. That's dangerous. Because that will breed resentment. And it will make it about you a lot quicker than you think. 
I'm going to go do this because then people will just start doing it back. That is what Jesus says. He didn't say anything about anybody doing this back to you. He just said, you go do it. Jesus checks our motives. And He demonstrates that the moment our actions become remotely self-serving, they are no longer true demonstrations of love. The moment your action becomes in any way self-serving, it's no longer biblical love. It's worldly love. So, Jesus takes the scalpel of the Word. One more time, He slices away at the flesh and exposes the way that we often deceive ourselves into thinking we are loving people. And we see this in verse 32-34. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you, ex- from, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So here, Jesus lays out this concept of loving and giving and lending, right? And he talks about the way in which our love is often shaped. It is a love that loves with expectation of return. And there, well, this is, in, in kind of philosophical terms, this is called reciprocity. It's a reciprocation, a giving back, a response to something you did. You do something, here is the response. That's reciprocation. Now, in the Roman world, Jesus is hitting them hard because in the Romans, right, the Romans practice what's called negative reciprocation. And the idea is, is that if you are a wealthy person, a person who has a lot of means, you go out of your way to give to someone of lesser means who you know can't equally pay you back. Why? Because it always leaves them at your service. They will always owe me something. This is the way the Romans practice. And guess what? It's what we do. It's how we do lending. We do interest-based loans. Why? So that we can make you captive to the lender. I love what Jesus says in here, right? Even sinners... Lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Well, how bad are we? Sinners lend to get equal amount. We lend to get way more back. Negative reciprocation. It's evil. It's evil. Now, the Jewish law practiced what's called balanced reciprocation. Right? Which is what Jesus says. I've given you $1,000. Just give me $1,000 back when you can. Right? I'll get that $1,000 back. It's eye for eye. Right? That's what that, that was about. It's about equal scales. Eye for eye was not a, a, a passage on revenge. It's a passage on equal scales of justice. Right? If I give to you this, I expect that amount in return, no more, no less. Right? That's what I expect. Jesus says, there's still no love in that. You're giving with the expectation of return. We love expecting to get it back. And when we don't, we give back resentment. We give back bitterness. We give back anger. And Jesus takes both of those views of reciprocity and turns them over and says, that isn't love in my, my view. That's not love as the, that, that's supposed to mark my people. Why? Because even sinners can do those things. It requires no supernatural act to do those things. 
There is no supernatural act to be able to give $100 to someone expecting to get it back. Anybody can do that. It just shows you how wicked we've gotten to start tacking on interest to things. So that we can get not only back what we gave, but more than we gave. It's a means of oppression and power. Jesus does something amazing here. You see that word? To what credit is that to you? That word credit there is charis in the Greek. It means grace. What grace is it to you to give to someone with the expectation of return? Guess what? That's not grace anymore. That's just a loan. Grace is giving to someone who cannot give back. Who can in no way ever repay you with nothing other than just a gift. It's a gift. Don't owe me. You don't owe me nothing. You don't owe me a thing. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's chorus. It's grace. It is a gift to those who cannot give back with no expectation for them to give back. This is the root that lies underneath most self-religious deceit in the world. Because even in the most wonderful of acts, deep down, we can be doing it for hope of reward, for hope of praise, for hope that we're seen. Which is why Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Notice that. I gave away everything. I put my body to even be burned. But you didn't do it for biblical love. You did it that you'd be seen. You did it that it would be exposed. You did it that you might be praised. You did it because you thought God would love you more because of it. You didn't do it just out of this self-emptiness. To see others be brought to Christ. Remember, even Judas wanted to sell the ointment to give to the poor. Rather than seeing it honor Jesus. Why? Because he wanted to be honored by Jesus. Yeah, we, we could have got, got food for a lot of people. If we would have sold this ointment, why should you pour it on your feet? It seems like a waste. All the self-righteous deceit. He says, but I'm doing this for Jesus. Rather than actually seeing what truly anoints him. And this is why Jesus says the scariest words in the Bible to me. Mark chapter 7, verse 22 to 23. He says these words. I'm going to have a delay there. That's okay. But Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice the emphasis. The emphasis was on everything they did. Didn't you see what I did? And Jesus makes clear, I know what you did. I just don't know you. The great danger of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Level and these sermons of Jesus is that we pluck out the ethical teaching and think it's all about doing. And not realizing you can't do what Jesus asked you to do without changing who you are. 
There's got to be a change of being before there's ever a change of doing that truly reflects the love He's calling us to. The initial impulse is to walk away from here today thinking that this call to love is all about doing. If I just go out there and do this more, then then, then that's going to be it. I just need to start doing more stuff for people and I just need to start doing this. You've already missed it if that's the case. The love that Jesus calls us to is not about going out here and doing acts of love. It's being loving. It's not going out here and doing acts of mercy. It's being merciful. There's been a change in my being that produces this kind of fruit. So leave here today not praying, God, let me be more about, let me be, let me be doing more. Pray, let me be more loving. Be more merciful. I want to change here so that I don't deceive myself when in reality I'm still wanting to do it for me. And this is what he brings home in verse 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. And notice, and you will be called sons of the Most High. This is the point I want us to take away today. The main point. In all of this teaching. The supernatural love and mercy that Jesus calls us to can only be produced through a supernatural relationship with God who is Himself love and mercy. You ain't going to be able to walk out of here just doing this better. You've got to be transformed. You've got to have been born again. Because this kind of supernatural love can only come from a supernatural birth. You've got to have a brand new heart. And this is what he means by you will be, you'll receive a great reward and you will be called sons of God. Is he saying that if we go and do this stuff, then we'll get to be called sons of God? No. You can't earn sonship. You can't merit sonship. Like no one comes in my house and says, if I work for a couple days, can I be your son? No. That's not how it works. Right? Sonship comes through adoption. Sonship comes through new birth. So what this is saying is it's not that that this kind of love, if I go and do this kind of love, it will be a prize for my sonship. No, it's doing this kind of love will be proof of my sonship. If you live this way, you shall be called sons of God. Why? Because that's who you'll reflect. You'll look like a chip off the old block. When you reflect your Father's love. That's what the call is here. Loving with this kind of supernatural love is not a payment to enter the kingdom of God. It's proof that the kingdom of God has entered into us. That being has changed. And as such, we have become God's children. Why? Because of the reflection of our Father is being made manifest through our life.
It's not about doing to earn. It's about we've become, therefore we do. Existence flows from a changed essence. Our essence, our being, our person, it's changed. And therefore the way we exist. Remember, we once were wrath, children of wrath, essence changed, sons, therefore new existence. You love. You love. And this is what the teaching is. And I'll close with these kind of two texts here because they're the the ones that hit it home. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as His beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So notice, right? If you are to be children of God, sons of God, you must look like the Son of God. He must be made manifest through you. If you are sons, God, if you've been given sonship, you will reflect the Son. You will be imitators of your Father. Sons of God look like the Son of God. And then, the most profound, one of the most profound chapters in the whole Bible, 1 John 4. John brings it home. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Notice, not God does love. God is love. So agapeo, that's the the only term used in this, is agapeo, agapeo, agapeo. God is love. Why? Because every action that He does benevolently towards men is never with any desire for reciprocation. He can't get back to Him. It's always a condescending, emptying love towards us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love... Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. I want to stop there for a second before we jump over to verse 16. Listen to what he just said. No one's ever seen God. He's talking about the the, the triune being face to face. The spiritual essence of the Father. No one's ever seen Him. However, He manifests Himself how? Through the sending of the Son who demonstrated His love through that way. And now He perfects His love through our loving towards others. How in the world is the supernatural love of God in Christ perfected through His people? That should be the question you ask when you hear that. How can God's perfect love be perfected through us, loving? Well, here's how. It's because the sacrificial love that He redeemed us with now reveals itself blossoming in the fruit of our lives. We were children of perdition, children of wrath, who hated God, our enemy. Yet God, in immense supernatural love, changed us and made us into children of God who now love our enemies. 
And it's precisely that transformation in us that went from enemies of God to now lovers of enemy that makes absolutely clear God's love in Christ was not in vain. And that's how it was perfected in us. Because it's revealed in us. And it says He really was loving enough to change sinners. He really was loving enough to take enemies of God and make them lovers of enemies. Don't you see how important this is now? And he brings it home. Verse 16 and 19 of John chapter 1 John 4. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is also, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, reciprocation. I won't have enough. I'm going to lose my stuff. My my safety is not going to be good. People may hurt me. They'll keep taking from me if I don't fight back, if I I don't do something. It it kills that fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. This kind of love can only originate with Him. It can only come from a supernatural change in heart. And what John brings home, there's a reason why John referred to himself as the beloved. John was not wanting to go around like, yeah, Jesus loved me more than everybody else. No. When you read John's first epistle, you get it. The reason why John referred to himself as beloved was because it blew his mind God would love him. It blew his mind that God would love a sinner like him and make him his own. And therefore, the defining mark of God's people, John says, better be that kind of love. Because if you've been touched by that love, you'll show it. The fingerprints of that love will mark your life everywhere. But our glasses are awfully clean. There's no fingerprints. We've made a sterile Christianity that isn't radical in its love. And we are therefore missing the defining mark. The defining mark of God's people is the supernatural love flowing out of transformed hearts to even to those who've wronged us most. Because here's the truth, beloved. No one will ever wrong us even remotely close to the degree we've wronged God. And yet, He so loved. If love and grace do not flow out of our hearts, then it just is the reality that our hearts have never touched, been touched by the God of love and grace. And so what should we do? My first friend, pray, God, make me this way. Don't show me how I can do this better. Make me this way. Make me so emptying where love is just the natural default response because it's not the default response. Make me so loving that that's the first thought. The thought of what others do and need. Take my, my, my love off of stuff and preservation and self and put it all on the desire to make much of you in my life. Make me loving. Make me merciful. You've got to do it, God. Secondly, look to Jesus. You've got to live with that pierced on your heart. Live with the cross pierced on your heart. 
Because if that cross is ever before you, the love of God is ever before you. And you will see constantly what your God did for you in love. And you will never be able to say, I cannot love this person. I cannot love and forgive this person. Because you have been greatly forgiven. Oh, how often we are like the wicked master who though been forgiven of all of our debts, hold in bondage those who owe so little to us. It ought not to be for God's people. And lastly, love all others in such a way that others might receive the reward by looking to the Christ of whom you reflect. This love is meant for one single purpose. Everything that you do, the whole reason that you exist is to reflect Jesus. I hope you understand that. Your central, single purpose in all existence is to reflect the God who created you. To reflect the Christ that saved you. And this is the love that will do it. So love your enemy in such a way that through your reflection of Christ, they might come to know Him. And know this, my friends. Love like this becomes a whole lot easier when you realize it's all about Him and not about you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. God, God, help us be more loving. Help us be more reflectors of the fact that we are sons and daughters of You. That Your love would so permeate us that it would draw us and move us to action and greater acts of mercy and kindness so that You would be made manifest in all that we do. So that your love would flow out of us. So that the world would look at it and recognize that this love is otherworldly. It's supernatural. It is not possible to merely be uh, wagered up in the hearts of men. But that it is, it's flowing from the spring of your love and your grace. Let us constantly be reminded of the gospel. The fact that we were your enemies. And yet you transformed us. Making us your sons and daughters. And therefore now we are called to love our enemies, to be reflectors of You to this world. God, help us be that. Transform us. Change our hearts. You've got to do it, God. We want You to be magnified. We want You to be manifested in our lives. So God, help us see where, we're, where, where, where we are reflecting our glory and our love and our self-preservation as opposed to the reflection of living for Your glory. Lord, I know it's hard and you knew it was hard, which is why we are called to live in constant and utter dependence upon you. So Jesus, pour into us. Pour your love into us that it might pour out of us onto others. Help us to pray for those when it is hard. Help us do good to those who have wronged us and hurt us. Help us be mirror reflections of you and not of the world. For it is this kind of radical, supernatural love that You have branded upon the hearts of Your people so that the world might run to You and not to anything else. Oh God, as Your sons and daughters, help us be more like You. Loving, gracious, merciful, Forgiving. 
so that you might be magnified in all that we are. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.